Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways in which the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. This show begins season two of On Cities, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Olivia Ramos, the visionary founder and CEO of Deep Blocks, an artificial intelligence-driven real estate platform that is transforming the way we think about the future development of cities. We're going to delve into the exciting and rapidly evolving world of artificial intelligence and what this may mean for architects, urban planners, or anyone interested in the future of the built environment. Olivia, I'm delighted to be talking to you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So before we delve into that wild world of artificial intelligence, uh, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about your formative years and how and what led you eventually to develop your current company, Deep Blocks. So in preparing for this conversation, I learned that, that you were born in Havana and you came to the United States when you were about 10 years old. So tell me how these early childhood experiences on the island maybe shaped your thoughts about cities. Yeah, actually, my mother is an architect. So I grew up going to the main Havana architecture office where they had, you know, at the time there were no computers, so a lot of pens and pencils. And I became really um, obsessed about all these like things that they had. And I, and I loved architecture for that and all the drawings and but I was actually uh, classically trained in the piano and violin. So my path while I was in Cuba was to be a violinist. And that lasted a little bit. I came to Miami, um, got to be the chair of the Miami Youth Symphony. And then I realized there were so many other things available here that I just became interested, interested in something else. So, But that education in Cuba helped me with diligence, with responsibility, with knowing that if I do something every day, I gain in the skill, and and so I think that was invaluable. So I I uh, I learned now that you're saying that your mother um, was an architect that that was the principal reason that you decided to pursue a career in architecture. But I was curious, um, did you live in the city center, or when you traveled to see her at the office, were you living outside of the? city center? So we lived in Playa, which was on the coast, and it was very close to the city center. My parents both drove motorcycles at the time, and that was a lot of fun. And then uh, we moved to Guanabacoa, which is like the center of Yoruba, uh, which was very spiritual, and it was completely different experience. Um, And then, you know, at that time, I didn't go to the center as much. Uh, my parents both quit their jobs. They began to create uh, furniture. Um, you know, the political situation there is different. I think it would be a longer story, but um, but yeah, when, when they decided to leave Cuba, they were immediately fired. So for the next two years, they they created furniture and, and, and they were very successful with that. So you grew up in a highly creative environment. Uh, from a very young age, which I, I think explains, you know, your multiple artistic talents. 
Yeah. And, and before that, I mean, it, it comes from a long lineage, I guess. My grandfather uh, was an artist, studied at Parsons, was considered the seventh uh, best pastelist of France. So there was a lot of pressure <laughs> to be creative. Most of my cousins were 18 of us are all in the creative field. So I think there's something about that. Wow. Sounds like a beautiful upbringing. So you have a very rich educational background. I mean, you have a bachelor's of architecture, and actually this is before I knew you were trained as a musician, <laughs> but you have a bachelor's of architecture from the University of Florida, a master's of architecture for, from Columbia University, a master's in real estate from the University of Miami. Um, so why did you decide to transition from architecture into real estate? Yes. So when I was in architecture school, I thought that I was going to graduate and begin to build buildings. And it was like a harsh reality that that wasn't the case. And and we took a class at Columbia that um, studied famous architects and their economic um, upbringing or their economic status. And and it, it, you know, that class kind of led us to believe that unless you were very wealthy and unless you had already, you know, kind of family funding, um, you were not going to be a star architect. And that kind of distorted my hope for being an architect. And I started to look into what kind of how does that ecosystem create a building? And, and if not, because all the star architects were not the ones creating all the projects. So I got into real estate classes for some reason at Columbia, um, pulled into some of the teams as the architect of those real estate classes and and fell in love with that power of analyzing the market, analyzing the site. I thought that was architecture for me and and kind of architecture was like kind of something that grew out of that study. So I thought that having a real estate master's would put me in a position to closer to create my own buildings. Mm. So you really see them as uh, linked or supporting one another, um, because oftentimes, you know, in architecture schools, and we're speaking from the University of Miami School of Architecture right now, you, uh, the architects and the developers can sometimes be viewed in a kind of adversarial position. Um, but in listening to you, you, you saw them as sort of complementary to one another or potentially complementary. Potentially. Yeah. So once I worked in the field, I worked in construction and brokerage and architecture and development. And I realized that everyone had, in, in many cases, an adversary relationship, the architect with the contractor, the contractor with the developer, the developer and the architect. And I thought that that brought a lot of inconsistencies and, and you know, the final product, the final building was lacking because or when those relationships were not um, aligned. And, and that made me, you know, very upset and also upset that I, it was like when I realized even with a master's in architecture or master's in real estate, that I wasn't going to be able to make my own buildings that I still relied on, um, on all of these different people that I had no control over. And so I, I left the field altogether. Wow. All right. So, so the ability to craft from beginning to end as a kind of, uh, uh, because you're right. I mean, the, the architect in particular is really like the great conductor of an orchestra. They have to, or she or he have to work with many individuals to be able to create the built environment. Um, but since you talked about leaving it, I think it was your first or one of your um, important internships that may have caused this shift, but I'd like you to talk about it. You, um, you had an internship with the DARPA program 
Um, what is DARPA and how did that experience change your professional trajectory? Yes. So, um, so a little bit, I'm going to trace back for a second because you mentioned that my mom's an architect. That's why I wanted to become an architect. I wanted to become an artist, but she didn't want me to suffer like my grandfather did in his process of becoming an artist. So she said, architecture is the highest of the arts. And she was thinking like, you're going to get a job after you graduate, right? So after I realized like I, I was powerless over being able to create a building, which I was in love with, I turned kind of back to art, but from a data perspective. So at the time, uh, Mark Wigley, who was the Dean of Architecture at Columbia University, was talking about big data. And, and I think it's one of the first people that I heard it from and, and that I was inspired by. So I, I, I led in that direction and applied to the DARPA Innovation House, which uh, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is the experimental arm of the Department of Defense. They're responsible. Uh, most people know them inventing the Internet, uh, inventing the robot dog. But I mean, really, they're ahead, 10 years ahead of most of the technologies that we know. And so that was amazing. That was an amazing experience. Uh, I got to design software, which it was never in my like it was never part of my plan uh and um and i loved bringing in everything i learned in architecture school and in the masters of real estate program here at um into software design um and so i generated a three-dimensional software for uh data analysts to look at tens of thousands of data points and touch them so they were like attached to haptic gloves and so there was this whole three-dimensionality that set me apart from the other teams and got first place in innovation and sort of it got to my head and I was like, I'm supposed to be a software designer and, and still felt like leaving architecture and real estate behind until I got to Singularity University where all of it kind of crashed together. And that was like a really amazing moment. Well, actually, before we talk about Singularity University, which is a very unique institution, um, I've heard you say that designing software is like designing buildings. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So software. Uh, so when I was at Columbia, most of my buildings were 3D printed. And every time I 3D printed a building, the 3D printer had to add additional structure to it because I wasn't thinking about gravity, right? And so, and I also didn't do that well in structures and materials and methods. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting, I, sorry that you say that because actually the physical model always has to contend with gravity. So there's still right, great power in the physical model. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But I yeah. left that behind. And at the time, you know, it was all about Maya and, and three, you know, and like scripting. And that was the beginning of that conversation. Uh, and, and so none of my models ever worked. Right. So I thought, and when I found software, I was like, this is perfect. It requires no gravity. You know, then and and it's just like architecture in terms of, like there needs to be a way to find the information, a way to understand the tools. Uh, there needs to be an interface, uh, which is what we experience in architecture. But also there's this back end where all the infrastructure happens, um, um, how it works. It's kind of like our plumbing, our HVAC. And and so I just for some reason, it all made sense to me. It still does in that way, especially now talking about data. Uh, data in software is like our natural resources and architecture. Where does the water come from? Where does the waste go? And and so this is it for me. It's it's all one giant thing. And I imagine a future where 
we design buildings more like software. Um, but, you know, right now the conversation is, has to kind of go back and forth. I think that could be very powerful. Well, we're definitely going to delve into the questions of artificial intelligence in just a bit. But you did mention that, um, I guess, the DARPA program opened up this avenue for you for thinking about, you know, the digital world and really thinking about it from the point of view of the designer, right? When you're talking about the design of software. So is this what prompted you to go to Singularity University? And if so, could you could you share with our listeners um, what is Singularity University and, and maybe what the greatest lessons that you learned there were? Yes. Um, so Singularity University changed my life. And um, a little bit of background, Singularity, the word Singularity uh, comes from when um, the machine and humans become one. And at least that's the way I understand it. And the, the university was founded by a great group of futurists. Uh, some of the more well-known names are Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil, who Ray Kurzweil wrote The Singularity is Near. Um, I didn't know anything about singularity when I applied, to be honest. Um, and I didn't know anything about DARPA when I applied. Um, oh, so DARPA came afterwards. No, DARPA came before. Oh, came but before. I'm just saying, oh, in both cases, I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, but Singularity, the program at the time was funded by Google. It was uh, it started with a three month uh, program where from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. you learned about exponential technologies. And it was so intense and so extreme that some people have trouble leaving the program and then integrating back into the real world because all you're thinking about is the future optimization, um, hyper digitalization. Uh, and every single field. So we went from the medical fields to space to Bitcoin at the time and blockchain, which was very kind of a young conversation. Um, every single field we went through. And then uh, in the middle of the program, we had to create teams and create a company that would solve a global grand challenge with a exponential technology. And that was their formula to create these startups um, that's some Wait, of, before yeah. you, you you get into the start of exponential technology. Describe what that is. Exponential technology includes three um, D printing, blockchain, artificial intelligence, um, quantum computing, uh, things that uh, that you know follow an exponential growth or have potential for exponential growth, which is you know every two years you increase in power essentially. And when you do that, I mean, I mean, it's, it's so just a little something that I learned there, humans can't think exponentially. We only think linearly. And there's a great example that I learned at Singularity that when the great analysts of the world, and I'm not going to mention any names, but the biggest companies in analyzing markets, uh, when the cell phone came out, for example, they predicted a 14% growth and the growth doubled. And the next year, 16% growth and the growth doubled. So even the, the people who are supposed to predict these things are not able to do it. And that's why a lot of technologies take us by surprise because they grow so fast and so quickly once they reach that exponential kind of hockey stick um, that you know we're, we can't predict as a human. So if, if the best thing to do and what I learned there, you said the most powerful thing is to remove everything that I know to try to understand when I'm thinking linearly, which is 99% of the time, and then kind of leave that space to be um, surprised 
to be inspired. And and that's what happened at Singularity, um, specifically how Deep Blocks was born. Yeah, so I understand, and you just um, confirmed it, that your idea for Deep Blocks was born at Singularity uh, University. And this is the company that you now not only found, but you lead. So what is Deep Blocks? And what um, exponential technologies are you using or implementing within them? And maybe what what problem are you trying to solve by creating this company? Yeah, so Deep Blocks. So when I got to Singularity, I was pitching my project from DARPA, which was about getting information into the brain seamlessly through haptic, through touch, through smells, through you know, kind of all of our senses. Except I had zero background, I had no credibility, and nobody wanted to join my team. And there was an equal uh, person who was getting on stage and talking about reducing the cost of housing. He was He's uh, Bernard Leong from Singapore. And he was so passionate, had no experience in real estate or architecture, but huge experience in leading artificial intelligent teams. So I said, well, nobody wants to join my team. I will join his team. And the least I could do is tell him how messed up the architecture and real estate industry is in terms of he's never going to be able to do it. And and um, I was very pessimistic at the time. I'm not like that anymore about the industry. But at the time, I I I, I joined his team as a to, to as like for caution to tell him that forget about it, don't even try it. And when I made this giant whiteboard of like all the different pieces from like the analyst, the architect, the contractor, all the different subs, everything from zero to completed building, and he looked at it and he said an AI could do this. And that was that moment of like, that was the unexpected kind of, my mind felt like it kind of broke and my entire future changed. And and I saw, and he explained that because all of the pieces are connected, even if these connections are weak right now, the entire kind of flow of information can be one giant system. And, you know, so when we could talk about more about that, but that is that was the birth of Deep Blocks. And, and I give a lot of credit to Bernard because he planted that seed and it was his idea um, that this was possible. So when he when you saw the fragmented pieces on that white whiteboard, right? You know, the architect that can't communicate with the contractor or the permit expediters that need to get your plans through the city. I can I can imagine like the cast of characters you were drawing there. From your perspective, you were seeing them all as being disconnected. But Bernard basically was saying, wait a minute, you there's a technology out there that has the potential to kind of connect all these dots. Am I understanding that correctly? Not that there's a technology out there, but with artificial intelligence and and with technology, we can connect the whole thing and then have an intelligent system learn the whole process and do it itself. So is this what Deep Blocks set out to do? Yes. Is that okay? So <laughs> how uh, describe Deep Blocks? So Deep Blocks is bringing together all the data and logic around analyzing cities, identifying sites with high potential for return um, and high potential to serve a demand and then generate a feasibility analysis to figure out the optimal configuration, whether it's uses or unit mix or, or what have you. That's where we are right now, but potentially the goal is to take it all the way through and, and generate 
the the design, the construction documents, and send it to be 3D printed, which is kind of would take care of all my frustration of having to work with a lot of different people. So maybe it goes back to that original frustration, like you want to be the single person to be able to go from beginning to end to execute the the building. That is or correct. The... Or somebody else. If this exists, everybody could do that. And and imagine this in the hands of architects. So who are your users? So who who is using DeepBlocks predominantly? And when I go onto this platform, give me an example of the kind of problem that you can help me solve. Yes. So we had uh, one of our most powerful advisors um, taught us that to use uh, artificial intelligence as a last resort. And so he always stopped us from, um, I'm sorry, he, he always stopped us from, from using artif- artificial intelligence too early. So we started by bringing all the data and realized how much of the data had to be digitized. Um, so zoning, for example, in order to understand the future of a city, you need zoning information. So the first task was, can we automate the, autom- the, the digitization of zoning in order to be able to understand instantly what you can build in any piece of land, right? So that was our first task. We completed that, and now we're bringing in more cities. But that first product, the other lesson we learned at Singularity was try to sell product as soon as possible. Don't try to make this, you know, 10-year vision and then bring something to the market. So we started shipping out product a year into coding. And the first product allowed uh, uh, developers to look at a city and say, and ask it questions, for example, what can I build? Where can I build 200 units? And there's currently less than 10,000 square feet. So where do I have that development delta? Um, and other clients, like where are their historical buildings where the property still has development capacity? So now you're able to go on an interface and and have a series of uh, sliders and input boxes where you can ask the city questions and identify immediately from tens of thousands of sites that you might have on a viewport, the five or six that meet your development criteria. That would take many, many months of work uh, before this technology. So to answer your question in a very long way, uh, real estate developers that are regional and national that are looking to expand to new markets because local developers understand their market. They understand almost every lot in the area that they focus on. So this is for ex- you know, expanding operations, regional and national developers and investment funds that are looking at development capacity as a kind of edge or an addendum to their investment and acquisition strategies. I see. And so, so your your principal user at the moment will likely be developers of multiple scales, let's say. But I could imagine that if you owned a lot in the city, could you go onto your software to determine like maximum potential for the site? Even if you know nothing about a zoning code, you don't know how it works, you just own a lot in the city. Could deep blocks help you? Yes. Think um, through that? Yes. And, and so some of the zoning... Zoning, we can make a whole show about zoning, right? But so zoning requires digitization and then not just the values, but the digitization of the logic. At this time, we're the only company that has done that because that logic is what allows you to bake it into each individual lot and is what allows you to then generate the what can I build? Answer that question, right? So how many square footage, how many units? That requires like a math 
that is specific to that city, the values they provide for that math, and then the size of the lot and the, the where the lot is. So we've done all of that. And um, although our first product was a national product for large um, large developers, we've now developed kind of a zoning API where in a few weeks, it's going to allow people to just put in their address and it tells them what they could build. So we're, we're expanding to a... Um, an audience that just might want to know their own property or if they're buying a property uh, where before it was these giant operations where they're looking to buy 20 properties in these like 20 states and they want to know as soon as possible where where that is. I see. So you you mentioned about where you're going, right? So you, you talked about where you are right now. And if, if somebody wanted to find you, they could, where would they go? And, and what kinds of tools could you offer them? Uh, deepblocks.com. Um, they're two main tools right now. One that that is, you know, $18 a month and you can analyze any property as long as you know the data. So it's kind of bringing Excel and SketchUp into one uh, mesh where you can, uh, gen it generates the 3D model for you. It generates the financial model for you. So all you have to do is say what you want to build, like three units, two units, um, and so on. So that makes it really easy. And then we have the pro product, which has 50 different layers of demographics, environmental risk, um, kind of incentives for affordable housing, zoning, parcels, uh, so a, sen a census data. And, and that one is a little bit more robust and it's about scanning and asking entire cities question. And, and that one starts at 680. So depending on um, who you are and how big the operation is, there's these two products that can be found at deepblocks.com. And so where where do you want deep blocks to go, right? Because right now you're, I, I, having spoken with you in the past, I know you're always working on developing the product, you know, to try to solve more problems. Or you said you're thinking about streamlining. So in your mind, can you project deep blocks like five years out? Yes. Um, so I think for the next five years, we're going to stay in the intelligence and data conversation. Um, because there are great companies out there that are already um, uh, optimizing generative design um, and, and even then taking that generative design to construction documentation. So we don't need to build it up, the entire pipeline ourselves. And certainly there's tons of uh, companies doing 3D printing. So we want to stay in the intelligence side because we have an edge by having digitized this data early and being the largest holder of digitized zoning data at the moment. So, so Deep Blocks currently is the largest holder of zoning data. Of in digitized the US? zoning data and zo more specifically zoning logic. So we're the only company that can tell you what you, exactly what you can build like in units or in square footage across any lot in the cities that we have live. Um, so, so we are going to use that. So because we have the largest data set, now uh, finally uh, we can use AI. We have enough data to train AI to extract that information um, from the zoning ordinances automatically. We're about 80% automated. We want to take it to 95% this year. And, and so that we can get all 19,000 municipalities in the US and then grow to Latin America. Um, so we're going to stay in the data and intelligence. And then what happens when we teach a model to understand optimization of zoning with optimization of finance, with optimization of demand? right? And demographic shift and sales um, trajectories. And, and so when we bring all of that into first a series of models, but then something more intelligent above that, 
that could say, this is where you invest for high risk. This is you invest for low risk. This is where you should develop. That's what we hope to accomplish in the next five years. Well, it sounds um, like you have a lot of exciting projects to be working on. We're going to go to the break, Olivia, but when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into the question of artificial intelligence and how um, artificial intelligence has uh, the potential uh, to transform the future of not only our professions, meaning architecture, real estate, and urban design, but probably all professions. So don't miss the second half of my conversation with Olivia Ramos. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Olivia Ramos, the visionary founder and CEO of Deep Blocks. Um, in the first half of the conversation, we were talking about um, Olivia's formative education and also um, the development of Deep Blocks and the tools that she's using to help transform uh, a future vision for the ways in which CDs are developed. Um, as part of the last, um, I guess, part of our first half of the conversation, when you were discussing Deep Blocks, you were talking about the uses of artificial intelligence um, in the development of your company. Now, today, there are so many articles out there that relate to how artificial intelligence is going to transform the future of our professions. <clears throat> we hear about programs like ChatGPT that can write grammatically correct text on an unlimited number of subjects in seconds. And we listen to or hear about drawing programs like Midjourney and Dolly that can produce endless streams of images just through verbal prompts. 
So let's speculate a little bit here about the future, Olivia. And I realize that we're in a speculative environment, but I think you've spent a lot of time thinking about these, not only thinking about them, but applying them in the development of your company. So given these increasingly powerful softwares, what do you believe will be the future for architects, maybe even writers or or, or software engineers um, in this new world? Yeah, I mean, it's... um the last six months from when ChatGPT came out and at least when I heard about Midjourney and Dali, which is a, came out a little bit earlier, uh, I think it's transforming. As we speak, everything's transforming. I've heard of companies firing 80% of their writers and the 20% that have stayed are to kind of uh, edit what comes out of ChatGPT. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of that. I don't think it's a negative, I don't think it's a negative thing, okay? So what these programs are bringing to the table is efficiency and power, power of scale. And if we can harness that, if we can embrace that, we could do a lot more with the same amount of time and the same amount of workforce, essentially. Uh, so there's always going to be these outliers or or these kind of like intuitive moves that we're not going to like, but I think overall is a very positive thing. And, and what I see the architecture industry and specifically uh, is, um, for example, we can now have 50 different designs, each with a different style um, that meet a very specific criteria in a matter of minutes. And, and that could be helpful in exploration. Uh, but, you know, that's talking about the tools we have right now, which is like, you know, uh, natural language, text to image, and now there's even text to video, which is really complicated because you're talking and you're saying what you want to see and it's creating timing, it's creating uh, motion, it's creating, uh, you know, a kind of essence uh, depending on what you write. So everyone should become an expert in prompt and in being able to communicate what they want to see with these different tools because those tools will expand and there's going to be a lot of overlays to these tools that will lead to um, you know generating buildings automatically floor plans um, construction documents detailing uh, integrating it with revit like all of these things are going to begin to morph into something that makes us a lot more efficient, a lot more able to produce um, a more optimal product. And then our job is to edit the outcome of that, to to make it really what we wanted it to. And that's going to require talent and knowledge and expertise. So I don't think our skill sets will be lost. They will just be applied to managing instead of a group of people, a group of outcomes uh, or outputs from these machines. So... What does it mean to become an expert at prompting? Yeah, I mean, people are graduating from school and getting six-figure jobs because they're really good at prompts. What is that? So, Can you describe that? Like, what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> a prompt is um, what you ask. Let's talk about mid-journey, right? A prompt is, I want to see a building in the desert with volumetric lighting, um, axonometric perspective um, at night. And then you get this image. But if you had said uh, in the style of X, or if you had said a different lighting or with a camera lens, so there's endless amounts of uh, parameters that you can put together 
to have a more, a closer outcome to what you intentioned or a further outcome, right? So that person that understands those parameters and can put it together to have a predictable outcome uh, in the, in the, in the machine it is the most, uh, will be the most efficient and therefore the most desired candidate for prompting. You know, it's interesting because when I hear you speak about this, you know, I wonder about, for example, the, if, if to be, to be good at prompting means you probably, I would imagine, have to have a very large reservoir of information, um, that you have studied, right? That you're familiar with so that you can be very, very precise. Like, for example, you could describe the quality of light that you see inside of a traditional Japanese, you know, house in the 18th century, right? I mean, assuming that you are that precise, it means that you probably have a knowledge of that. You have been in that space, perhaps you know what that space is like. So in a curious way, when I hear you about talk about how in this world, you know, designers might need to be really good at prompting, maybe it means we also have to know our history. I mean, the role of history, the role of experience, the role of travel and conjuring the kinds of spaces that we might want to prompt may play a more important role. I'm not sure, but I'm... I'm- I 100% agree. Uh, I think the deeper your knowledge base is and the more diverse you are, um, in that knowledge base, the the better you will be at getting a predictable outcome, a powerful outcome from these machines. So if it's not just uh, being able to write well or or it's really understanding what's possible. And to understand what's possible, you have to know what has, you know, what we have seen before, I guess. Um, and when it comes to architecture, yes, because now that you have all the knowledge of all the historical lineage of architecture, you can pick and choose what of which you know era is most successful and put it all together in seconds. You know, you I can- don't know how I feel about that. You, <laughs> you don't we do that anyway? Don't don't like each point of history kind of takes a little bit from the last one and and kind of innovates a little. Now you could take every single one and like do whatever you want. With it. Wow. I don't know what to think about that, Olivia. I'm going to have to wrap my head around that because I I don't know whether more information really gives us more wisdom or more data is going to give us better cities, you know? But I think, you know, part of this language of prompting might also be your ability to edit, you know, not just put a number of things together, but your ability to also edit the work. Um, so yeah, I don't know how to wrap my head around the one of uh, the possibility of combining it all, but I'm going to press you a little bit further <laughs> on this topic because I came across a recent article by Professor Neil Leach entitled um, AI is putting your jobs as architects unquestionably at risk. I think we could probably um, replace architects with a whole host of other um, professions. And this piece was featured um, on Dezine just this past February, 2023. And for those of you who are listening, Dezine is one of the architecture's most popular digital platforms with over 3 million monthly readers. So Leach argues that architects, or quite frankly, most professions for that matter, cannot ignore AI. 
They have to play a role in integrating it into the profession if they are going to have a voice in the way in which AI will transform the profession, right? So what would you say to this? Do you, I mean, again, the the knee jerk is always um, fear, you know, because the risk means that there's going to be many people in many professions that are going to lose their jobs. So we tend to focus on, on what could be potentially lost. And I think that's inherently part of being human. But in your mind, you, you, you started by saying you were optimistic. Yeah. So how can you see AI adopted into architecture or urban design in ways that might have positive outcomes? I mean, can you, I guess you mentioned a few earlier about how you could, you know, use it for schematic design purposes to create many iterations quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there others that you can think of? Many, I mean, endless. And and I think this article is not pessimistic. I see it very optimistic. Uh, It's saying that you should embrace the new technologies. It will transform the industry. And this is your chance to be part of that sooner than later, because you will be part of that sooner than later. Um, and and I think it evens the playing field a little bit, you know. Um, so imagine if we can, if we had a system that understood the city in every capacity, every resource, every law, every allocation of taxes, everything in one system, and you would you were able to run thousands of iterations with potential different intentions. What if we want the city to have the most amount of natural light and, and natural ventilation? What would that look like? What if we want the city to be, co- the, for every building to be completely autonomous from infrastructure to be able to switch from, you know, to to kind of survive an infrastructural attack, whether it's like natural or unnatural. Um, so all of these questions, and, and I can, you know, kind of think of many more, I'm sure you can too, could be answered. We could have answers to everything. How do we add more affordable housing? Where do we add it? All of these things can be analyzed in no time if a system had all this information, and then we can make decisions according to what our intentions are. And it could even be a public thing. You know, public hearings can be virtual and everyone can have all the information and and make decisions uh, together. So there's a really beautiful and optimistic future in having the efficiency and, and the automated, um, the automated way of understanding potential. Yeah, I think again, being an architect and an educator, as I hear you speak, you know, I I I'm optimistic in general, you know, as a person, um, but I also um, think that you know when I, when I listen to you describe this these these scenarios, I I I heard in in your in your answer that there also needs to be an intention. Yes. Because otherwise, I think we could just be wallowing in just countless amounts of information and data to the point that we are, you know, not able to make any decisions. And I hear in your answer that, yes, there would be powerful amounts of data available to us to model different scenarios. But I think where maybe the architect or the designer comes in is that one has to have a vision for what that might be, or at least an inherent desire. So for example, the example of wanting to develop a city that would all be passively cooled, you know, I think there has to be a vision for what it is that you want the data to help you do, you know, granted, 
that search may take you in different directions, but I suspect if there is no initial intention, you could really be just like in a small boat on a giant open sea, just tossing with endless amounts of possibilities. But let me give you like one specific example, maybe that relates, you know, to me personally, but might also relate to many of our listeners is that in, in our office, um, as an architect, I'm, I'm using all manner of digital softwares you know, to develop the projects, but I'm still someone that draws by hand. And I still believe in teaching students to think by way of drawing by hand, at least at the onset of their architectural education. So in a world dominated by AI, will skills like hand drawing become obsolete in your opinion? No, not at all. I, I think uh, hand drawing is a way of putting thoughts into a visual form. Um, and it's a, it's the most direct way to do that, in my opinion. But I also have, you know, academic background in drawing, uh, through schools of architecture. Um, and, but you'll be able to take that drawing, feed it into a machine that will generate the entire building for you, 3D model, floor plans, everything from that drawing. Um, and, and why not? Why not go from either, you know, a paragraph into a fully completed building or a hand drawing into a fully completed building or somewhere in between, like a conversation where some of it is drawing, some of it is, is, is text. It's no different than leading like a team of 20 interns to, to do the, the actual visualization and shaping and sculpturing of the idea. You're just now using machines. Hmm. But I think the more skills you have, from drawing to prompting to 3D modeling to having experiences in real world environments and, and, and understanding empathy and understanding problem and demand, the, the more you'd be able to make these tools have a powerful outcome. Of course. And the potential for you to add more value um, in the future. Yes. yes. And I think speed is something that we're struggling with in terms of like the demands of our cities. Yes, I can, I can certainly attest to that. <laughs> Um, so maybe can we think about perhaps AI's potential to serve underprivileged communities, perhaps, you know, we've talked about developers, we've talked about architects probably serving certain clients, but in, in, um, their book, The Future of the Professions by Daniel and Richard Susskind, they describe how less than 5% of the world's buildings are designed by architects. And when I read that fact, I was, I was shocked. Um, on the one hand, you could be depressed by that fact, um, or on the other, you could say there's 95% of the population that still could be served by architects or designers of the built environment. But many factors contribute to the reason why this doesn't happen. And among them are, you know, access, obviously, but also costs of certain architectural services that can be high depending on the clients that they're serving. So do you think that AI could open new avenues to contribute to the building of cities and communities that serve a broader sector of, let's say, more under underserved populations? Absolutely. And, and given that fact, when I last heard that fact, it was 20%. Um, that was maybe like 20 years ago. So I, I think it's, it's, it's shrinking, uh, which, which is, it makes me sad, but it also gets us closer to an inflection point where something needs to be done so that architects do serve uh, all of the community because every single building should have thoughtful intention behind it. Um, and I think the problem is how slow it is and how expensive it is to come up with a solution. Right. And which brings me back to the argument of using AI. So what if you can generate 
five different models for optimal affordable housing. And we can even bring it to, uh, these are examples that we used to pitch deep blocks at Singularity, uh, which were very effective, which is what if we get informal housing, we understand the materials they have available, and we get the machine to generate a new version of those housing that's safe, secure, and sustainable with the same materials. Who's gonna get paid to do that, right? But what if it's done for free? What if the machine just does it because you tell it to? So we can serve a much broader audience because the time that we spend, those products that are made with machine with the architect intention will be much better than the products that are not made by architects, right? Maybe not much better than the product that the architect spends weeks trying to design, but but those are that's luxury for, for our communities. What we want is effective buildings that are safe, secure, beautiful, um, you know, pleasant, that add to your life, that bring an inspiration to your life. We don't have that today in many communities. Yeah, I think that example opens up a whole host of opportunities and possibilities. At least it gets me thinking about a, a number of scenarios. And actually, there are rising populations all over the globe that are living in informal settlements. And so there would be huge sectors of the population that could benefit from ways to reduce cost of design services um, and perhaps implement what you're describing. And I don't think it would uh, rule out the role of the architect also, um, as the architect isn't present in these environments at all at the moment, or very little, I should say. Exactly. Um, so I think um, there are opportunities in what you're describing. So actually, um, we're, we're coming to towards the end of the conversation. And I guess, you know, continuing to think about this, because again, as uh, you've spent quite a bit of time educating yourself in a variety of institutions. I practice, but I'm also in education. And I'm really interested in hearing your perspective about what skills do you think are particularly important in the training of, let's say, again, the architect in this case, or urban designer in the future, maybe skills that are, that do not become obsolete so quickly. Um, I think something that I wish I had in my education um, in architecture and real estate is understanding and being able to code. Maybe not uh, you know, as a software engineer to that level, but just to code in Python. Every single one of our tools in architecture, Revit, CAD, uh, Dynamo, everything, you can take it uh, to another level if you know a little bit of Python. So I think everyone this day and age should know and communicate with some kind of coding language. But also, I think, is just bringing in every time there's a new technology, just exploring with it, like bring it into the classroom and and saying, well, what if you had to do a project with this? And what 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 are the options here? And having academia lead the conversation of what to do with these tools instead of having to catch up once these tools begin to shape the industry. Um, so I think, you know, right now would be prompting, coding. Uh, and, you know, generating images more efficiently. Yeah. and But also I, I was interested in, in what you said before, that also some of the timeless ways that we have always communicated, your ability to verbally, you know, describe what it is that you're after certainly will play a role in in 
prompt design. Um, so your ability to verbally communicate, your ability to write, I think is putting put into question with chat GPT, but your ability to draw. I mean, the example I gave you, right? Um, you know, somebody who enjoys drawing and actually sometimes gets frustrated because you have to be in front of the computer all the time. You're telling me that that skill could translate. I could take that hand drawing and eventually produce a series of documents. And so we have been drawing as a species since we've existed. So I think um, that could be interesting, um, but also perhaps like soft skills, like your ability to connect to people, your ability to bring things together. I mean, some of the soft skills that are not so, your ability to work in large groups, for instance, I think may also um, may also play a role in in thinking about the future of not just the design professions, but you know others, in fact. And just to follow up on that, because I, I agree, 100% with what you're saying. And I think that is really important. I, I think the the key to this technology and the efficiency and the automation leaves us time to understand what the real problem is. That was a very large uh, lightning bolt. I don't yeah. know if anybody heard it on. <laughs> I'm hoping we don't get disconnected. And I think because we have to spend so much time producing and executing, we don't spend enough time thinking about the problem. And if we spend 80% of the time or 50% of the time thinking about the problem, coming up with a solution, and the execution was done automatically, we'd be solving many, many, many problems much faster. So I think problem solving and connecting these, you know, all skills with the AI, the, it's the integration of the two that makes it powerful. Um, learn a little bit about photography, learn a little bit about of space learn you know everybody has to learn a little bit about everything we're we're coming we're to the last two minutes of the conversation so i need to ask you what's I'm your trying favorite to avoid city? that last question what's your favorite city and why olivia i love coastal cities because i love the ocean i grew up in cuba we had a house in hibacoa which was the one of the only cities in, in havana that had no colonial architecture so it was very very kind of raw and so I um, I'm very passionate about Havana uh, as a potential future uh, project that has no infrastructure working at the moment, and there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I live in Miami. I love Miami. I think the energy in Miami, the progress in Miami, um, is really inspiring. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done with you know sea level rise and and autonomy of buildings, and and I want to be here for that. And um, I'll end it there. How about those two cities? Well, yeah. I I um I will concur with them um, living in them and uh, having family origins in Cuba. Um, I think those are powerful examples. So thank you, Olivia. Thank you for uh, the time spent talking about these um, challenges and opportunities for the future of our cities. And next week, I'm going to be joined by Francisco Rodriguez, director of the School of Architecture at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where we're going to be speaking about the role of the city in the history of architectural education. Follow us on On Cities podcasts on Instagram or tune in to all of our previous episodes on the Voice America Network, Spotify, Apple iTunes, or wherever you get your favorite podcast station. Thanks so much, Olivia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your work. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 